Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Mastering the Room, brought to you by the Graduate School of Political Management at the George Washington University. I'm your host, Steve Pierce. Every episode on the show, we'll sit down with some of the brightest minds in politics, advocacy, and communications. They'll give us a behind-the-scenes look inside the room where it happens and offer their tips for how you can not only get in the room, but master it just like they did. New episodes drop every other Monday, so be sure to subscribe to Mastering the Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred podcast listening app may be. And if you like what you're hearing, please give us a rating or review. Just a few seconds of your time can really help us spread the word and reach more listeners just like you. And if you want to learn more about GSPM, feel free to check out our website at www.gspm.gwu.edu. And now, without further ado, here's a brand new episode of Mastering the Room. Hello and welcome to Mastering the Room. I'm your host, Steve Pierce. Every week we take a behind-the-scenes look inside the room where it happens, guided by some of the brightest minds in politics, advocacy, and communications. This week on the show, we're joined by Aaron Lavalle, an alumnus of the Strategic Public Relations Program at GSPM and currently the Deputy Assistant Administrator for the Food Safety and Inspection Service within the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Prior to his time at USDA, he started his career as an organizer for Howard Dean's presidential campaign in 2004 and went on to serve in a variety of different roles on political campaigns in Congress and for various consulting firms. Aaron, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Well, thank you for having me. Let's start at the beginning, as we like to do on this program. Where does the story of Aaron begin? Oh, my goodness. Where were you born? What was your family like? What were you like as a kid? What was young Aaron really interested in? Okay. Where, uh, does, it all, where does it all start? Take Fort us back. Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. So for those who know Fort Leonard Wood, uh, it was I obviously <laughs> an Army brat. Um, both parents were uh, Army officers. Um, it was, it was a great upbringing. My my mom was the higher ranking officer of the two, which is an always an interesting fact that kind of played out over my my career, and I can weave that in later. Um, but moved around all over the place from Kansas, Missouri, Massachusetts, uh, Colorado, and the final tour of duty for my family was actually in Hawaii. So I graduated high school in Hawaii. In Hawaii, what on on Oahu? Yep, or? on Oahu. I went to. Uh, well, it wasn't really an academic school. It's actually known for its football. So. If you follow Tennessee Titans or Alabama, all their quarterbacks, they all went uh-huh. to the same high school I did. Um, so it was a football school, but I, I did well uh, in the academics that they did carve out for me. <laughs> what were you? What were you interested in as a as a kid? What would, what was that? What was what was what really got your goat? You know, I was kind of the I, I was the the kid in the group that always did the group assignment and would, and would say you know no problem I'll take that on and let me and at the time actually my first job was at the now defunct Kinkos Copy Center uh. so of course all my reports were were bound and had color <laughs> copies and and I was the kid that everybody hated because it kind of set the standard or, or the curve in the class but um, that was it was really you know I was one of those kids that was curious I wanted to know how everything uh, worked. Um, I had odd hobbies where I would just latch on to something and it would be my focus for, you know, five, six months, almost obsessively. And, you know, until I figured out and then move on. Did so your parents are in the military. Did you guys talk about kind of current events, news, government, politics, any of that at home, like around the dinner table or? You know, it's funny. Early on, the only parts I remember... um, 
So during the 80s when, you know, there, there was a, a big buildup um, in the military and it was Reagan. And I do remember um, when when that era went out and there were started to be cutbacks in the military, just hearing those snippets. Um, my parents were not political people until later in life, until they got out of the military. But you kind of pick up on some of those snippets and actually form the early concepts of of what does this party mean? What does that party mean? Only based on what they spent on defense. Hmm. Interesting. So what what's kind of your path into politics and government? Uh, you ultimately end up building a career in that, obviously. How do you kind of figure out that this is this is a thing that I'm interested in, A, and B, this is a thing that I can like do for a career, right? Oh, it's really bizarre. You know, I, I went to the University of New Hampshire and and I knew that I want to work on Wall Street. So I studied economics and I got dual dual degrees and, and concentrations in two different types of economics. I couldn't tell you what they actually meant today. Um, but at the time, I was insistent I was going to Wall Street. I graduated and I worked as a mutual fund accountant. Hmm. And I did spreadsheets and Excel sheets and more spreadsheets. And about- Actually on Wall Street? No, no. I had not moved down there yet. I was up in New England. And at the time, I it was it was during the Iraq War. And I was banging my head against a computer doing spreadsheets. And I finally said, this is crazy. This is not for me. I ended up uh, making an accounting error one evening and I cost my company about $1.3 million. Oh my gosh. Uh, they were good sports about it. They um, they did not fire me. They kept me on and said, well, we want to give you a chance to turn it around and and uh, and you know see if you, see if you can keep going on on this path and I and I actually did for a couple more months until I got to a, a level where I wasn't making any any more errors. Um, I did not make any more errors. But at no that more point, one point three million dollars. It errors. was a big error, and that was in nineteen. Oh goodness, that was actually that was no, that was two thousand and one, two thousand and two. Uh-huh. So it was, it was a pretty big chunk. How do of you change. feel when I, I I've never done made any mistake in my life that has cost anybody near that much it money? Was How do an you amazing feel? failure. It was an amazing failure. Um, it puts things into perspective. I, I realized, wow. I mean, I I could have been let go. Um, I mean, everybody thinks they're they're a hot shot at that age, and and I think it, it really put put things into perspective for me about um, resiliency, uh, not sinking down into a wow. I I'm really horrible at this. Uh-huh. Um, I actually was pretty horrible at that, but <laughs> only in hindsight. Um, and I, I think it it again it. it it was a really amazing and expensive lesson early on at the expense of somebody else, I hate to say, but you know, they were again that that company has now been bought out multiple times and right. they were they were a good sport about it. But at that point I is when I quit my job and went to work for the Howard Dean campaign for eight hundred bucks a month. Yeah. So how do you that's quite the <laughs> Quite the shift, right? Howard Dean, we would not think of as the most pro Wall Street type of nope. candidate. Uh, th- there certainly are pro Wall Street candidates. He would not be one. How do you make that? That's a dramatic shift. How does that happen? You know, it was fascinating. It was actually the war. So during the start of the first Gulf War, um, my, well, let me back up. My parents were fortunate enough to be stationed at every military stop together. Uh, except for in the early 90s. Um, my parents were given the option of us going to Korea for three years, or my dad could go to Izmir, Turkey and work with NATO for 15 months, but the family, it would be too dangerous for us to go over there. The family would stay behind. Mm-hmm. So we actually split at that time. It was the start of the first Gulf War, and I remember the phone rang one morning, and I, I picked up, and it was my dad, and I could hear something wrong in his voice. And it turns out um, he, he didn't talk to me. He just said, put your mother on the phone. And what ended up happening was some terrorists had placed a pipe bomb across from an American apartment building where he was, and he had just happened to step into the bathroom when the bomb went off, um, which which saved his life. Um, and it just it just started to put things into perspective. That was kind of a pivotal moment for me in terms of, you know, military and what it means. Just 
I realize that there are families on the ground when we have military intervention, that there are people that would ultimately pay the price. In this case, um, my father, you know, he, he was safe and, and survived, but fast forward, um, and that's actually what brought me to the, the, the Dean campaign. It was, it was his stance on the war. How do you go about kind of getting that job? Is it, did you know someone with the Dean campaign or did you just show up one day and kind of decide, hey, guys, I'm here to help? How, how did that work? So it was interesting. So in, that was up in New Hampshire and I had lived in the community for a while and I, I volunteered. They were in the early stages of putting together community organizers. This was way before o- Obama had, had right. even you know done house parties. This was the early stages. Uh, they worked very closely with Marshall Gans out of Harvard, um, who is very well known for those who follow politics and, and, and community organizing. And, and it was in the very early stages. It was it was August uh, before the primary, and I and I went in and said, "Hey, are you guys hiring?" And I quit my job and ended up being a community organizer outside of the Concord, New Hampshire area. So, obviously, you've had a career since this point in politics and in government. Um, but kind of starting in that place where you're an organizer, you're on the ground, you're doing the grassroots stuff at the kind of the beginning of organizing, which is certainly on the Democratic side of the aisle has kind of taken over how uh, we do politics. Um, how has that experience kind of being there at the ground floor, learning as an organizer, how has that influenced and kind of helped your career uh, and inform your career kind of as you've moved forward and had different roles and different jobs? That's a great question. So I remember going through all the trainings, um, not only training um, with, with Marshall Gans and some other folks, U.S. Action, uh, Camp Wellstone, mm-hmm. named after or former um, Senator Paul Wellstone. And it was actually in the Camp Wellstone training where they they started off the the, the multi-day training focusing on on power and power dynamics and who has the power to bring about the change you want. And it was that lesson that actually eventually brought me into communications. Mm-hmm. And it's actually stuck with me to, to this day. I just came out of a meeting with um, with my deputy administrator at the office. And we are there was some language in the farm bill asking us to produce a, a specific report and just kind of gaming out the the consequences or who has the power to bring about the the change that could be at the end of this report. Um, and it's carried with me all those years. And that, again, that was probably 19 years ago that I had mm-hmm. that training. Or, it was Close a long time it. ago. Yeah. But that's how that's what brought me. That's the thing that stuck with me the most. So from there, you you kind of continue doing a bunch of different organizing things. You eventually you you end up working as a campaign manager, right, for a state senate race. Correct. Um, those are often really thankless and really hard jobs where you kind of have to do everything as the campaign manager on a small race like that. And you don't get a lot of glory, but it's absolutely kind of essential for our democracy that those people do those things and do those jobs, which are really important. What did you learn from that experience um, as just kind of a person, the person who kind of has to pull it all together as the campaign manager on a small, small state race? Um, what did you learn from that that's kind of that that's informed and, and propelled you forward, uh, particularly as you've made this switch from organizing into communications, which uh, is kind of the path you've gone down? Yep, that, that's a great question. I had an amazing candidate. This is a salt of the earth New Hampshire candidate. In fact, when we went to do our first photo shoot, um, we actually had to find his suit. He didn't really <laughs> own a suit. Um, very well-known gentleman, very well-respected across the community. Um and I actually learned the importance of authenticity um, mm-hmm. and credibility. I mean, these are terms we use now, but back then, and I remember working on a mail piece with him and, and, and his opponent, um, you know, I wanted to change the color of the opponent's shirt so that he kind of looked like Slimer. Uh, <laughs> and I remember my, my boss saying, we don't have to do that. 
Um, and it just, it was an amazing lesson in, in being genuine and being yourself. We ended up wiping the, the floor. We won 17 of 18 towns. And um, it really, in terms of wanting to be and, and understand the concepts of power, that was that was kind of like a shot of adrenaline to, to, to win and realize, wow, this is pretty, pretty amazing in terms of a career and doing something like this. A lot obviously happens out there on the camp tra- campaign trail. It's it's long hours. It's hard work. Uh, interesting people. You often get great stories uh, out of it, even if you don't get much money or job stability. A lot of the time, you worked on a lot of different campaigns and different grassroots efforts. Do you have a a favorite story that you picked up along the way that kind of comes to mind that crystallizes your campaign experience? Well, you know, it's it's funny. You talk about the long hours. I actually met my wife on that race. Um, huh. And it's amazing because when you're when you're on a race, you can't you can't hold a normal relationship, right? right. Your your hour or your dating starts at nine ten p.m. Um, <laughs> you know, and 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 there is an amazing understanding, but it's also a lot of fun. You know, my wife at the time was was the state finance director for the for the Senate Democratic Caucus, and so um, you know she figured out early on I'm extremely competitive, so she would. Um, lie to me and tell me that the other campaigns in, in the state Senate Democratic Caucus were raising more money than mine. Um, <laughs> it worked out because I would go back and, and have my my candidate at the time, you know, and this is actually leads to the, the great story. Very well connected. I didn't know it until we started fundraising. And then we, you know, he was, he didn't do phone time. He said, I don't need to do phone time. I have very good relationships and I, I know these folks and I trust them. And next thing you know, we started getting checks from people like Deval Patrick. And I'm like, wait a second, how do you know Deval Patrick? <laughs> Well, I serve on the board of Milton Academy. Wait, you're on the board of Milton Academy? Why isn't that in your bio? And so <laughs> we started getting checks from, um, you know, Adlai Stevenson's son and all these folks, you know, Fortune 500 company CEOs. And it was just amazing. Um, you know, it, it actually worked out really well. We raised a lot of money for a state Senate race up in, in New Hampshire. And I, I think to this day, it probably um, set the tone for how much money needed to be raised. But um, just, just you know, there's some of these odd stories. Um, Here's a good one. Um, up in New Hampshire, they do the you know they basically do these these barn dances. Yeah, it's a political thing. It's kind of like the the pork chop roast out in Iowa. Um, and I remember we were at a, we were at a barn dance with a bunch of the different candidates and and the staff. And one of them, not from New Hampshire, said, "You know what we're going to do? We're going to drive up north and drive across the Kangamangas Highway." Anybody who's ever been to New Hampshire. This is the highway pass that crosses the White Mountains. It's not something you do after you've been partying and you do it at 11 <laughs> o'clock at night. Uh, we ultimately passed. Those folks got back at two in the morning. But you look back on some of these memories and it's like, you know, that that's part of why you do a campaign is because of the crazy stuff you do right. when, when you're not out there uh, knocking on doors. In 2007, you make a, a decision to briefly, just for one year, go to work on the official side, uh, kind of cross the transom and go to work on the official side for uh, Congressman Paul Hodes as his uh, district liaison, another New Hampshire politician. Um, what kind of motivated you to make that move? Because that's a different world than the world you'd been in on kind of the grassrootsy campaign side. Um, and kind of how was working on that side of the fence different for you? It, it's interesting. I had somebody approach me, and, and she ended up being an amazing mentor. She's a state rep up in New Hampshire, Mary Beth Walls. Um, and, and she and, and the congressman had approached me and, and, and knew who I was and asked if I would consider working. And and at the time, I was I was pretty hesitant. I didn't want to necessarily get into the public policy side. Um, I ultimately did and took the approach of, at this point in my career, every little thing kind of adds to that resume and that, that portfolio of skills. I ended up being a district liaison. I, I drove the congressman all over New Hampshire, which was amazing. Got to see 
the smallest little towns with the oddest quirks. Um, but then the most rewarding part was I actually got to do constituent services um, and worked on some really high profile cases. We had a case, um, we referred to it as Hero the Dog. There was a, a young man who was serving in Iraq and he was killed uh, by an IED. And the night before he was killed, he sent a picture home to his mom of him holding this puppy. This is a 260 pound burly, just, it was a GI Joe type image with this tiny little puppy. Right. He was killed the next day. His mom and his fiance called up the office and said, we want to get that puppy mm. out of that war zone. It's the only thing we have to remember our son by. Mm. So we actually, um, it took a lot of work. It, it, we had to find somebody who would transport it out. The military, of course, said absolutely not up until it became a very big PR story. And then they, they decided to be helpful. Uh, but D, we, we lined up DHL. There were only three airlines flying in at the time. It was DHL, Royal Jordanian Airlines, and something like Egypt Air. But DHL, I actually called their PR office and I said... I'm gonna I'm gonna appeal to the the your your PR team here because I think this would be great. And sure enough, at the end of the day, they got the picture of um, them pulling that crate with that little dog out of a yellow DHL truck. And but we pulled it together, and the tears, um, the family. You know, I, I stayed in touch with them for a couple of years afterwards, and it was just it was one of those things where you could bring some joy to a family that had lost and so much and had sacrificed so much. Um, it actually, for the reasons that was such a positive experience, it started to weigh on me. Some of those cases, that was mm -hmm. the one that we won. There were other ones that we didn't win, and, and you couldn't help somebody out. And I, eventually, I said I, I, I wanted to make a change. And so where, what's your direction kind of from there? You decide you need to make a change. This isn't quite the thing for me. Uh, how do you kind of, what's the next step? How do you just make that decision? So it actually came down to, uh, for those who have worked in a congressional office, you, everybody knows the dynamic between the state staff and the DC staff. Mm -hmm. Both are equally as ignorant in what they're doing, um, <laughs> depending on which side you're on. And I remember it was an argument around how do we help raise the congressman's profile? Um, and, and it kind of just hit me that, it comes down to communications. Yeah, it's not the chief of staff. It's not the the, the policy. Nobody's very seldom anymore. Does anybody's name get attached to a big landmark policy? Um, and I and I just realized it, it was communications. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I actually started applying. I couldn't afford grad school, so I started applying it to jobs down at, at GWU. And and a, there was an office over. It was something to do with aerospace engineering. And there was a gentleman over there who was the preeminent authority on. When, whenever they needed a story about NASA or they needed a quote from an academic related to something in space, they would call this office. So they offered me the job. And at the time, I had a friend and I, who was living down here and said, give me your resume. She floated it to somebody, a small PR firm, and they called me and ultimately ended up saying, come work for us. I said, well, I'm sorry. I just about to take a job with GWU. I'm going to get free grad school. And they said, well, how much is grad school? And I sent them a price back and they said, we'll match it and we'll pay for your grad school and give you a salary. And so that was just odd how it worked. That the lesson takeaway there is whenever share your resume with everybody, uh, friends that you haven't talked to in a long time. This was somebody I worked with on the Dean campaign and, and you know, I stayed in touch with randomly, but she passed my resume in front of somebody she happened to know and it went from there. So how do you how do you find out about GSPM and GW and how this whole thing exists? How do you how did you kind of come to know about this that this was a thing? So this is actually this is going to sound horrible, but it, honesty <laughs> is the best policy. I don't like taking tests. I did not want to take um, you know any of the GREs or any of the tests to get into grad school, and. I, I don't remember how if I Googled it or I Googled it and then called down. And at the time, the public relations program was just getting started. Um, 
And so I didn't have to do that. And that was actually <laughs> one of the driving factors because I just didn't want to go through the studying. It wasn't that I was lazy. I just, I, and I did fine on tests. It's just, I'm not a standardized test taker. I had to take the GRE to get into GW. So now I'm feeling like I was, I was robbed. Uh, oh, <laughs> maybe I you mean, were I robbed would, of the I was experience. Diligent. I, I placed the right calls. I, I made sure, um, but it worked out because I also knew that I wanted to come down to DC and I don't think that this was the, this was the, 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 the only program at the time. It was actually one of mm-hmm. the first programs started in this field. Others have mm-hmm. since popped up, but I knew I wanted to come down to DC. Um, this is, I wanted to go from being a, a medium-sized fish in a small pond of New Hampshire down to a, a, a little fish in a, in a very big pond. So what was your GSPM experience like? You come down here, you're here, you're kind of pursuing, you're doing strategic public relations, you're pursuing this communications path, which you've decided is kind of like the thing, the way to make the change. Um, what was your GSPM experience like? Did you have favorite classes, favorite professors? What did you What did you take away from this that that kind of helped set you on the path that you're on? So in the in the first few s- semesters, the most there are two things that really stood out. It was the it was the professors, the quality of professors. Um, I had a professor Suzanne Holroyd who taught uh, our public. Uh, basically, it was our it was our research science staff, our class, if you will. Um, amazing. She worked at a and I'm trying to. She worked at Fleischmann Hillard at the time. And just when you when she would talk about her examples and and cases or situations she was working on, it was this depth of knowledge that it just it just kind of blew me away. Uh, one of my other favorite classes um, was the public policy class or and, and and public opinion class, and I never thought it would be. It was actually the classes that I thought I would hate that I ended up loving mm. uh, the most and really kind of latched onto. And then the second big takeaway were the students that were I, I was in class with. I ended mm-hmm. up learning as much from the students as I did from the professor. And and a lot of those folks have gone on to do great things. And at the time, they were they were part of great organizations. And just you kind of look around, and there is there to a certain degree, there's some osmosis from the talent that's in the room. And and the folks who are out there doing different things, and they're you know they're challenging you, um, coming up with better ideas than you, which you know if, if you're competitive, obviously kind of fuels <laughs> that that fire to do better. And those are the, the 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 main takeaways for me within the first few semesters. You've spent now a decade pretty much at at USDA, um, and obviously you know there's a lot. There's no shortage of public relations, public affairs firms here in DC. Um, lots of different opportunities. You've spent kind of your last decade, pretty much almost since you left GSPM uh, at USDA. What has what kind of guided you in that path and, and, and set you down that path and going down that direction, working as a communications professional in government as opposed to, you know, what might be considered a more traditional field for someone who studied uh, strategic public relations? You know, for me, it was, it was the challenge. I think it, historically, and you still see pockets of this around government, government you know, public relations fe- professionals, uh, they're normally referred to as public affairs specialists or public information officers. And historically, their role was just that entities or audiences will ask for information and you hand out that information. Mm-hmm. There's no sort of messaging behind it. There's no sort of looking to see how can we better communicate it. It was almost a very pass through position. And that's just not the nature of the world we live in anymore. And uh, for me, it was the challenge of can I turn around uh, these that role wherever I sit at, at the Department of Agriculture. And in the early days, I, I sat up at the at the department level um, at the time for uh, Secretary Vilsack and Deputy Secretary Kathleen Merrigan and did a lot of work on v- projects r- with both of them, whether it was the My Plate, which, you know, o- which replaced the food pyramid, mm-hmm. um, 
I was unfortunate enough to handle the calls when Lean finally textured beef, which folks will probably know as pink slime. We don't call it that. <laughs> it's not actually a thing. It is Lean finally textured beef. But I was the person who got the pleasure of handling all those calls. And that's what ultimately led me to the Food Safety and Inspection Service. But I think for me, it was that challenging of being able to kind of break the mold or the status quo as people understand communications and government. What would you say? I mean, 10 years is a long time anywhere in this town, um, let alone with one organization. What would you say has kind of been the key to your success um, at USDA in terms of creating a long-term career path within a federal agency like that and being as successful as, as you've been? I would say don't slow down. We all have successes in our past, and and you can't rest on those. People aren't interested uh, the resume will get you in the door. It's your actions and your ability to produce that will keep you in, in, in the door and in that seat. And I think so often we get comfortable in positions. If, if I weren't challenged every day with, with the new scenario, um, I wouldn't be in the same position. I had just happened to work for an agency where uh, it's a topic of interest. People are very interested in food and food safety. Uh, our policy initiatives when, when we go big, we definitely go big, and they get a lot of attention, um, both from, from stakeholders and special interest groups uh, to Congress. And so it, it ends up being a lot of fun. I'm allowed to bring together like the larger public affairs and not just the communication side. I happen to oversee the Congressional Relations Office in our agency, all the way to our, our FOIA office. And so uh, the information that goes out from our agency, it really, it, it's given me the opportunity to, to, to have a role in all that. I mean, you work for the the federal government, which is one of the largest institutions in the world, the U.S. federal government. Trust in institutions as kind of a whole is is that kind of an all-time low, particularly among young people. Folks just aren't sure of or are distrustworthy of institutions as a whole. Um, what advice would you give to a young person on kind of a why they should bother to even get involved in something like politics or government um, in an institution, a big institution like that, and b how they can find their own voice or path or lane through which they can contribute and participate in a meaningful way, like you've been able to do. It's it, that's that's actually a really tough question. Um, I've been giving a series of presentations uh, at various public health conferences where I talk about this issue of, of trust. And you can look at um, uh, Edelman's Trust Barometer. Institute for Public Relations came out with some, some surveys recently. But the, the trend is clear, as you point out. It's very difficult uh, as a communicator with the government knowing that people there is an inherent distrust, maybe not in me personally, but as you said, in the institution. And I think what I tell folks that interview with us is what gets you up and going uh, in the morning and make sure you know it and, and it is really what drives you because we don't win a lot of the stories that you see in the news. Um, nobody writes good f food safety stories. Nobody writes about the lives that are saved. It's only the recalls that go out the door or we're poisoning everybody. And, and, and of course, none of that's true, but you, it means that you have to have an inner strength when you come into the office. You're, if your validation and reason for being are those headlines, this my agency and most of government is probably not the place for you. Um, and so that's my advice is just have a solid core. Know, know what makes you tick. If it's the public service, if it's the challenge, whatever it is, and just kind of hold tight to that. One last question. There are a lot of opinions. Uh, people have different views about what kind of 
what are the building blocks of a successful career? What determines success? And, and you hear it kind of oftentimes in, in kind of a bifurcated two options. Uh, is it kind of what you know or is it who you know? Uh, in your opinion, what, do you th- what have you found to be most important in your career uh, to this point? Is it what you know? Is it who you know? Or is it, is it some combination of both? I think it's some combination of both. As I touched on, you know, I just happened to know somebody who put my resume in front of the right person. And that obviously got me down a path. It, it didn't keep me going on the path. Um, you know, this town is full of people who know everything. I would say 90% of them can't back it up with actual um, actions or, or, or product. So what my advice to people would be, it's okay to be the smartest person in the room. Just make sure you can back it up because at some point it, it will catch up to you. And, and, and that really means... What's the secret? Show up 10 minutes early, work 10% harder than the next one. And, and folks smile and laugh, but I, I manage quite a few people. And sometimes in this day and age, um, you know, showing up on time and, 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 and reliability, I think these are things that 20, 30 years ago we used to say were, were kind of cornerstones of being successful in a career. But I think reliability to a certain extent has, has gone out the window as we look for things like creativity. And those are important. But I can tell you that when my administrator or deputy administrator calls, they want to know that I'm going to be be able to be reached. And and that's not, you know, and that really comes down to being reliable and being there for, for your team when you're needed and your, and your number's called. Aaron LaValle, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thanks for sharing your experience and your wisdom with us. I'm sure our audience is better for it. We really appreciate you uh, taking the time. No, thank you. <laughs>